Well, hello and welcome to our Fuds on Film podcast. My name, I'm relatively confident, is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today, I believe, by Craig Eastman. Hello. And Drew Tavendale. La pe la nostra. And you join us again in a world where time has no meaning, but we have found six films that purport to entertain us throughout this uh, period that we find ourselves in, and I guess we will report back on whether they achieved that end. Uh, the first one on this list is the rhythm section, and, well, that task falls to Craig. Hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so Plates night by a foghorn. <laughs> before we start, have you guys both watched this? Yes. yes. Right, good. Or not good. I'll, let's not see. Good. Um, as much as I have any awareness of movie production schedules these days, I only became aware of the rhythm section when the trailer popped up on the IMDb app. Coming across somewhere between a European spy caper and a female-led Taken, my curiosity was immediately piqued at the notion of Blake Lively going from suburban family every girl to ruthless assassin in search of a vengeance, in search of a vengeance, in search of vengeance for her family who have been killed in a transatlantic plane bombing. Lively's one of those actors who I can imagine doing something really fantastic given the right opportunity, a notion I somehow managed to take away from 2016's bonkers shark debacle, The Shallows. <laughs> and director Reed Morano was a complete enigma. A number of podcasts to which I subscribe were now talking about her with interest as a known quantity, but I'm ashamed to say she was absolutely absent from my radar. As protagonist Stephanie Patrick, Lively starts the movie an unknown quantity herself, backstory being served as a series of silent, lingering daydream vignettes of middle-class family life where everyone alternates between jovial hugging and lingering smiles to camera. This is momentarily juxtaposed with Stephanie's haggard current existence as a sex worker in a setting immediately interrupted by the arrival of a journalist who drops the bombshell regarding the fate of her family, something which up until now has been deemed a tragic accident. Disappointingly, this is all the personal exposition we can expect, which is really unfortunate as it somewhat undermines Stephanie's subsequent journey into her own personal heart of darkness. There's a lot to be said for economy of storytelling, but if your movie intends to pivot emotionally on my empathy towards an average Joe falling foul of exceptional circumstance, I feel I'm entitled to get to know them at least a little before they transition to a ruthless killer, lest I ultimately know them only as a ruthless killer. I expect empathy is being demanded of me by the sex worker setup, but with no time spent on understanding how harrowing that might be or how far from her upbringing this leaves Stephanie, I can only judge it to be lazy writing and or a cheap attempt at emotional blackmail, neither of which I appreciate. When her journalist contact immediately ends up dead, Stephanie heads from London to the Scottish Highlands to meet with his inside man, disgraced former MI6 agent Ian Boyd. A performance by Jude Law that's not so much phoning it in as allowing Nicole to go to voicemail. (laughs) For reasons known only to himself, rather than send Stephanie packing, Ian affords her some opportunity to impress him through a Rocky-esque physical training regime, sadly not in montage, and is won over by her determination. Naturally, having demonstrated she can swim across a loch, Ian immediately progresses Stephanie to the stage of training known as Assume the identity of a presumably deceased female assassin and ingratiate yourself to professional agents of international espionage, travelling Europe mercilessly executing those involved in a plot to blow up your family's plane without anyone cottoning on to the fact that you're spectacularly out of your depth. Thank goodness for Sterling K. Brown then, who pops up as former CIA agent Mark Serra, with whom Stephanie builds a professional and ultimately physical relationship, because he at least manages to infuse his own woefully underwritten character with an aura of shadiness and duplicity that is absolutely absent from the script. 
Without his presence, I might actually have gone off to load the dishwasher and conduct other such <laughs> low-level household chores rather than keep forcing my eyelids open in service of Stephanie's quest. Despite all the talk of Morano's skill in evidence throughout her previous directorial work, including The Handmaid's Tale and other high-profile TV projects, I find myself unable to build much anticipation for whatever her next cinematic outing might be, which is a shame as I have a shocking lack of knowledge when it comes to female directors and I would desperately like to rectify that. What initially piqued my interest in Morano was her background as a cinematographer, a role that she has previously doubled up on in other directorial projects. Here, however, that duty falls to Sean Bobbitt, another name I drew a blank on until I read his CV and realised he's done some very high-profile stuff. Unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be high up on that list, beside the likes of 12 Years a Slave, as somehow the visual aesthetic of varied European cities and the Scottish Highlands, one of the most contrastingly stark and appealing landscapes in the world, hey, we're biased, somehow came across as mostly muddied and indistinct. A little digging into shooting locations perhaps highlights why the Scottish landscapes and London street scenes appear to have been shot in Ireland, no disrespect Ireland, with everywhere else in Europe covered by Madrid. Still, it feels like the film could, with a little more effort and input, have been at least made more visually dynamic. In case you hadn't gathered, I don't think there's much to enjoy here, a fact borne out by the complete lack of any desire on my part to structure this review in much of a coherent way. (laughs) Perhaps worst of all for a film so bereft of detail, having given the rhythm section the time of day despite myself, the ending left me confused, and I don't know if that's because it was poorly written or I momentarily lost concentration at the key moment. Either way, I don't really feel that's my fault, and I certainly didn't feel compelled to skip back and recap what I might have missed. Avoid. Yes, um... I didn't lose concentration much as I wanted to, Craig, so that only leaves you one option as to the ending. <laughs> so Were I'm you similarly confused as to how she made up her mind about who the true culprit was, Drew? I um, watched this five days ago and I can't remember the ending. <laughs> um, it's. I, I actually, um, I kind of thought that was coming, but then I, I thought that I actually expected something better of this film and that I thought it would be, in a way, worse in that I suspected that she would do that, realise she'd actually made a mistake and the big mastermind was the other fella. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that is what I was expecting. I was expecting that. Um, and I'm kind of disappointed that didn't happen because, like, well, that would be extra stupid and that'll, that'll fit the film nicely. It, um, it would fit the film nicely because it would explain why an absolute nobody was... You know, you could imagine that in that circumstance, having an absolute nobody be a patsy to clean up the mess left behind would make sense from a plot point of view. Yes. Well, you've made you've mentioned two very important words there, Craig, which is really my biggest issue with the whole film. Explain why. <laughs> I would like this film to explain why anything. <laughs> the the explosion of the plane was passed off as an accident instead of a. A terrorist event. Please explain why. <laughs> then the um, is it Rasa Jaffrey? I forgot his name. The journalist. Journalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rasa Jaffrey. So I wasn't sure if he said got his first name. Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, I couldn't tell his name, but he was immediately familiar. Yeah, I've seen him in spooks and stuff. I think yeah. I know him. Um, yeah, Rasa Jaffrey. He comes to Blake Lively to tell her about the fact that this was actually a cover up. Please explain why. And then she goes up to uh, see Jude Law up in the Highlands and then he locks her in a room for her to go through cold turkey for a bit. Then when he comes out, suddenly he's tracing her to be an assassin. 
please explain why. Because <laughs> these things just happen, right? Then, and there is no explanation. It's like, no. oh, suddenly he's training her, but there, there's been no discussion about it, and she's just going along with it. It's just happening, and then suddenly it's months later. And he's shown no desire to do it, but somehow it's as if he's he's grudgingly. It's as if he's being ordered to do it or forced to do it somehow. He could just yeah. tell her to go away. Well, and a then, film needs to occur. I suppose I'd better do it. <laughs> And then not I've, on got a, I've got got a paycheck I've taken. <laughs> not on her first attempt to but her second one, where she's she once again isn't actually any good at this. Um, and rather than it being uh, like suggesting that she's got any real difficulty with it, it's more just I think she's just incompetent. <laughs> she's not like working up herself up to have to do this thing. But uh, the second one, which she fails to do, then Jude Law's there and does it anyway, and like. Well, if he was there all along, knew what was happening, knew where she was going, why didn't he just do it? Please explain why mm-hmm. he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- I don't understand a single character's motivation in any of this film. And it's just so dreary. Uh, and I don't see... I mean, actually, I, I perked up a little bit when the opening credits came up because it said produced by Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, that's quite interesting. You don't see oh. those names outside of Bond very often. Yeah, I was going to say for a spy movie, this sounds, uh, yeah. There's a wee bit of promise here. And then, uh, then it just moves on. Like, and then quite quickly, uh, oh, oh, oh dear. Right. Um, and I don't, it's weird, Craig. I think when we were discussing covering this film last week, I was, I was absolutely certain I knew Reed Morano. I'm like, mm-hmm. nope, I've never seen a thing she's done. I don't know where that idea came from. Maybe mm-hmm. I've heard her name a lot or something, but yeah. I'm not seeing where there's great promises coming from from her. Uh, I, well, this is the thing is that I, I became convinced that I must be familiar with some of her work purely by the terms in which other people just started talking about her as a known quantity yeah, and like the quality of her work. And I'm like, oh, right, okay, yeah, I'm, this must be someone I've heard of before and I've just put her, I've just, you know, Put, put her out of my mind or for you know whatever reason and then I realized nope not seen a not seen a single thing and prior to this I don't think I've heard any of these same people talking about her so I don't know yeah um Blake Lively is largely unknown to me I, I think the only thing I've ever seen Blake Lively in was The Town mm. uh, with Ben Affleck and I, I remember being passable in that but I, mean, I have no yeah. opinion of it you know what to be fair to her she's okay in this she's yeah why she's cast as an english person i don't know but i don't know either but her, her accent is passable drew yeah i was pretty impressed with her accent mm-hmm. although perhaps not to the extent i've seen with some other actors but i do feel she's a bit constrained in terms of emotion by having to do the accent i've seen that before mm-hmm. um and again as i say i've seen it worse but um some of her line of it was a bit or a bit flat, perhaps. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, I suppose she does well enough, but there's a character's completely underwritten, as is the character of every character in the film. Mm. It's just a complete nothing of a film, and it's just so dreary and boring, and it really ought to have been better, but when, like one of the highlights of your action set pieces is a woman failing to overcome a man in a wheelchair who can't see. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not that impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who was catatonic to begin with? Yep. <laughs> this this whole assassin gig isn't panning out the way I expected it to. Yeah, it's, it's just a it's just a bad film. Um, oh. And honestly, I don't know where the the big problems lie. It's just it doesn't have any visual flair. It doesn't seem to have any editorial or directing flair. Yeah. But, 
and the acting from Blake Lively, she's probably the best thing I've heard though, because her mm-hmm. acting is solid. She's just in a terrible film with a bad script. Mm-hmm. Um, Sterling K. Brown, uh, I, mean, I guess he had some charisma, which is what the film was solely lacking. So mm-hmm. that's okay. Yeah, Jude Law, you, you described it well, Craig. I won't bother saying anything more about that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a complete blank of a film. It's a shame. I think with the exception of Lively and Sterling K. Brown, it's just as if everyone involved was just trying to, it just felt like they were just trying to get this over and done with. Mm. Like as if they were acknowledging the fact that, because I believe it's based on a novel. Um, and yeah. it's, it seems like the kind of novel that would be like a, a, you know, a beach read on a holiday or something. You know, you read on the, the flight to Alicante or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it, you know, and it would make for, you know, potentially the the trailer. I think the problem for me is I built up the expectation because the trailer really emphasised the sort of down and sort of dirty or what what kind of made out this was going to be a sort of like low down kind of dirty B movie kind of like spy thing, and I'm really down with that, mm. and especially with the notion of a of a female director behind the lens because not to be like super woke, but this is this you know. More than most other genres, I think just the, the spy genre. Name, name me another film that's been directed by a uh, you know a spy movie that's been directed by a woman. There, is there might Dark be people... thirty count as a spy film. No, sort see, I don't. Is. I don't know that it does. I mean, it might do. It might do because immediately I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm thinking. I was going to say action movies, and then I thought, all right, okay, I can't. I can't say that because of the person you're thinking of. But I don't think you know a spy thriller. I don't. I can't think of. There's a genre that, man, listen, I will take all the female perspective I can get on that if you want to give me some quality material. Yeah, just nobody involved really seems all that interested. Yeah. And I don't know why, I don't know if this is, the, is it just a case that Reed Morano was told like, okay, I know you've got some projects that you'd like to work on. Uh, you know, if you want us to fund X movie, then we really need you to make this pot boiler for us. Just go out and make this thing and then we'll let you do the thing you want to do. I don't. I just get the impression it might be something along those lines, but the reception to this has been so bad, and the box office has been like record poor. I think it's one of the, the one of the lowest box office openings on record for a for a movie that hit so many uh, screens uh, on its opening in the US. A tenth of its budget. Yeah, it's like um, you know, and it doesn't have a huge budget to begin with. That you can't help but think that this might be one of those where she's you know she's she's made a deal with the devil. Uh, but now the devil's not going to let her make make the things she wanted to make anyway. It's just really bizarre. Yeah, and to go back to the trailer, I think this may be the last trailer I actually saw in the cinemas before they all got shot. Um, I I really liked that trailer. I thought that trailer was really good. I would like the the person who was involved in creating and editing that trailer to be involved with actually doing the creating and editing of the film. Uh, But sadly, that is not the case. Let's have no more of these misleading trailers. But yes, the trailer <laughs> editing was good. Um, yeah, it was a trailer for a great movie. Yeah. Uh, just before we move on to uh, Scott's opinion on this, can I just ask a question? Because it's uh, an irritation of a film has just come back to me. And mm-hmm. given that it's about the rhythm section, I can't mm-hmm. believe I forgot about it because the film's called, as you may have noticed, the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And it starts off with suggesting that bits of your body are parts of an orchestra or something. Mm-hmm. And it does the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. Did I miss it or did I never actually get to which part of your body is the rhythm section? So like one part of you is the percussion, one part is the bass. And then I don't think I ever actually you, mentioned the rhythm section. The heart is the whatever and your breathing is the bass, I think, or the yeah, other way around. Heart is percussion then and breathing is bass. Oh, yes, yeah. or the other way around. But, and then did that twice. And it's mm-hmm. like, 
um, Jude in Law service of a title that was basically a title looking for a for a novel. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, it yeah, makes no sense never actually to mention the the title in it. Yeah, so, yeah. so I didn't just miss it; it's just not there. Yeah, pretty much. Thank yes. you. <laughs> it's the the thing that annoyed me, and I, I purposely avoided putting this actually in the text of my review that I've just read to everybody um, because it kind of annoyed me so much. And um, at the point at which they wheel that out, I'm like, oh my god, this is so laboured and just false, and it's so so forced this whole thing, and then it's never followed up on. Um, and not only that, but it's in service of right, okay, you're learning to shoot. If you want to actually kill somebody with a gun, you need to be composed, you need to do this, you need to think of, and I'm like, right, if I can get behind this, and if you're going to make something of it thematically, that would make sense. How many people does she kill with a gun in this movie? Two. Is it even that? Uh, There is one, but I'm not sure if it's many more than that. Not a lot of people get shot in this film. No. No. um, Not a lot of people die in this film, in fact. Nope. Nope. Um, and not that I'm hankering for people to be murdered, but it kind of begs, the, you're, you're quite right to bring it up, Drew, because it kind of begs the question, right, what was that whole thing about? You know the thing you've named the movie after? <laughs> was the point of that again? Oh, there wasn't one. Yeah, it's just a clever title. Somebody yeah. thought it was a clever title. I'm not even going to add anything. Uh, I, As I say, I watched this five days ago. I barely remember it. Um, it has occupied so little room in my brain that even though I knew I was watching it to talk about it in a podcast I couldn't be bothered to remember anything that happened in it so uh, that pretty much is the impact that it had on me uh, can I just can I just say Scott picture me this morning trying to write that stuff out having watched it the best part of three weeks ago <laughs> this is you know what the, the the bad or the worst thing about this is is that man I want nothing more than a sort of really dirty spy thriller espionage movie with a female lead and a female director because there's a whole perspective that I haven't got on anything yet and that I think could really inject something interesting into a genre and the biggest my biggest worry off the back of this is that no studio is going to turn around and hand this kind of movie to a female lead and a female director again anytime soon yeah yeah and that's a real shame yes um, so Onwards, literally. Yes, onwards to the latest Pixar film, which uh, which is called Onward, and it is set more or less in a cuddly animal version of the uh, Dungeons and Dragons scenario minus the humans. Well, except they figured out that magic is a bit of a pain in the ass and that wizards are subtle and quick to anger. So when some elven Edison invents electricity and sets their world on a path to industrialisation, magic begins to fade from their world. Later in what's now basically America with centaurs, Tom Holland's Ian Lightfoot turns (laughs) 16. Uh, but still mourns for the passing of the father he never knew. So perhaps does his elder brother, Chris Pratt's Barley, although he seems to be burying it in an obsession with the fantasy game legally entirely separate from any intellectual property of Wizards of the Coast's LLC. Please direct any inquiries <laughs> to Disney's vast legal edifice. As a final gift from their father, their mother, Julia louis Dreyfus's Laurel, gives their brothers a magical staff, a rare gem, and a letter from their father describing the father's visitation spell that can resurrect him for a single day. Barley can't cast it, but unexpectedly, Ian accidentally kind of half does. The bottom half, to be exact, to all appearances resurrecting his dad's trousers. Clearly, they need to try again to complete the spell, but the process destroyed the gem, so a call to action then, as Ian and Barley take off in their uh, take off in Barley's dilapidated van to find a replacement, followed closely by their mother and her new partner, Mel Rodriguez's cult Bronco, who naturally has a strange relationship with the two kids. 
I wonder if there will be any closure of that and any other emotional conflicts in the family that will occur as they undertake this unexpectedly dangerous and stressful quest, preferably around the 80 minute arc, so that we can get the perfunctory action finale out of the way and wrap this up with a feel good dinner meal and get home in time for tea. Oh wait, we're always at home. We can never leave the home now. (laughs) I'm coping well. Uh, Onward is fine. Uh, well, it's better than fine. I, I quite enjoyed my time with it. I recommend it. It's a very solid film. It's maybe the best film we'll talk about today. It's just a little disappointing that I can't be more excited about it. I always hope from Pixar that we'll get another Coco, which had a much better take on the underlying themes of this. Uh, but this is more mid-league Pixar, which is still many leaps and bounds ahead of many other animated studios game, and perhaps a little bit unfair. After all, there's not really a single thing I can think of here that I thought was actively bad with dependable performances and pleasant graphics. Uh, Perhaps a bit more world-building wouldn't have gone astray, although it's having a very large lap sheet on it. The let's-go-on-a-quest plotline is somewhat pedestrian, but none of that's too much of a detraction, and certainly I'd rather see a sequel to this than Bright, so, you know, take them smooth (laughs) with the rough. Uh, I can't whip up a lot of enthusiasm, perhaps, but I still recommend Onwards to all. Uh, Yeah, I just can't get all that worked up about it. What do you guys think? Um, for the most part, I'm not going to add a lot, Scott, but for the most part, and I'm only actually going to repeat what I've, what I've heard elsewhere because I share the sentiment largely, but for the most part, this is kind of maybe the first hour and a bit of this is very much kind of by the numbers, mm. kind of feels like joining the dots Pixar, but then really emotionally, it kind of pulls things out of the bag at the end, yeah. which is kind of a cruel thing to do because I lulled myself into very much a state of apathy throughout the rest of this film only to get then punched in the face by (laughs) a really emotional ending and then having to explain to my kids that daddy had to nip to the bathroom to take his contact lenses out and rinse them. But yeah, it's perfectly, um, for the most part, this is just like a perfectly good film. And let's be honest, man, if... (sighs) This is, along with another film we'll speak about later in this podcast, this is a film that if you've got young kids in the house, you're going to have no choice but to watch under current circumstances anyway. <laughs> so you've, you've probably already got an opinion on it um, and you already know what you think of it. But it's good. It's not um, It's not at the top of the list by any means, but it's it's not the worst effort for a film of this kind. And uh, Chris, uh, Chris Pratt, isn't it? Yeah. Is probably the best thing, best thing he's been involved in by some margin for a while now. So, yeah. All good. Yeah, I wouldn't say avoid it, but uh, yeah, perfectly acceptable. Oh, no, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I did not care for this film at all. Really? Um, yeah, setting aside the second and third Cars uh, films, this is vying with The Good Dinosaur for Worst Pixar Film. It's just so pedestrian. I don't find it visually interesting. I find the story terrible, boring safe, obvious, manipulative. Um, I was sitting with you there, Greg, and for most of the film, it was entirely apathetic, and it got to the end, and I was just pissed off. I wasn't um, brought to emotion (laughs) by it. I was just annoyed. Um, Because it's like, it's just spelling out stuff you've already seen for yourself, and the whole film just felt like it was spelling stuff out. It was being really perfunctory and obvious about everything it did. And honestly, I'm really surprised that that was Tom Holland as the Ian character, because I only just found it out like three minutes ago when I actually bothered to look at the IMD page that I had <laughs> open for the last hour. Mm. Um, because I'm really surprised at him, because I like Tom Holland a lot. And in this film, it's like, it was just so flat. And I just, and I think as a character, because they've tried to have a kind of very ordinary sort of kid as a character. Mm. And part of me appreciates that. It's like, you want to see just kind of like your ordinary kids, um, 
ordinary characters represented in the screen. But then I got to the end of the thinking, maybe there's a reason they're not, because they're not interesting. Uh, I just this film just bored me. I just, I'm not mm. impressed by this at all. I just don't think there's anything special. There's no magic. It's kind of like it's got so many of the same ideas in its mind as Coco. I said, Coco's amazing and this is terrible. Yeah. I don't quite get how the same people made it. I think Tom Holland was probably the weakest thing about this, but do you know what? I come from a position of, and I can't really ex- I can't really explain this or qualify it, and this is going to sound terrible, but I, I don't like, I, for some reason I don't like Tom Holland. I can't take him seriously, and I honestly That's don't know enough. why. Um, You're allowed to not like people, Craig. I feel like a lot of actors go into voice acting gigs like this in animated movies without really appreciating the scale of the job ahead because I can imagine the mindset of like, oh, well, this is actually going to be half as difficult as giving a physical um, and verbal performance on screen because I'm only having to do the verbal part. This will be a nice Mm -hmm. easy paycheck for a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But actually, do you know what? I think you're going to have to work twice as hard because you've got to convey everything using only your voice, really, and the rest is down to the animators. And I just, I, I do feel like he was kind of, kind of weak in this. And I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's objective or if I'm just bringing my sort of weird dislike of Tom Holland into this. But I mean, that, in the, general, is kind of an old argument that we've hmm. we had a little while back when we were talking about. Um, it used to be something like this would be cast by like professional voice actors, which is a very different profession from just actors. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a very different skill set, and uh, I'm not entirely convinced that having famous actors uh, has really improved it. When you go back to some stuff that uh, are, you know, anime dubs, these kind of things, like there's obviously some very bad ones of those, but there's also been some very good ones of those, and most yeah, of yeah. those very good ones of those are not really done by professional actors <laughs> as such. Um, Mr. Lazar. <laughs> not, it's not like on-screen actors, anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it is a different skill set, and perhaps Tom Holland hasn't mastered it yet. Um, that's what I, yeah. that's what I wonder because I know he's younger. I don't want to patronise the guy because he's better at his job than I would be. <laughs> yeah, but there's also um, it's kind of weird seeing like two people as big as Tom Holland and Chris Pratt in this hmm. too. Because actually, if you look back at say I say Tom Hanks, right? Hmm. If you look back at um, Pixar for the longest time, one of the things that actually set them apart was they didn't go for the biggest yeah. stars. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. the star of The Incredibles was Craig T. Nelson. Mm-hmm. Very much a television actor, and he's not a big film actor. He pops up in smaller roles, maybe more indie stuff. Yeah. Um, and then Tim Allen was a TV actor and comedian, you know. And then um, so Albert Brooks is in one of them. Yeah, he's in Finding Albert Brooks and Finding Nemo. So and Albert Brooks well known for doing voice stuff in The Simpsons and other things. So they, like they went for people maybe who just fitted the role more rather than star names. They've never really mm. gone for star names, and that's maybe another thing that's wrong with this film. Yeah. Well, it's as close to stars because, again, recently in the podcast, we've had the conversation around what does what does movie star mean anymore? If you're not if you're not Tom Cruise, I mean, the notion of classical movie stardom has, has gone out the window now. And if it weren't for mm-hmm. being Spider-Man, who would Tom Holland be? You know, so from that point of view, I can think of the argument of, well, yeah, he's not necessarily a massive name, is he? Spider-Man's massive. I don't know that Tom Holland's yeah, yeah. a massive name, but I just I don't know I don't know that he's got the skill set to deliver this, and I don't want to be patronising and suggest that he's too young to be able to cope because there'd be plenty of evidence of uh, younger actors. Uh, and you think from the sort of the really accomplished um, Disney dubs of Studio Ghibli stuff when when Disney 
first um, partnered with Studio Ghibli. Some really fantastic voice performances from younger actors then. So that would be that would be somewhat stupid of me to suggest it's an age thing. But I just oh, yeah. I don't know okay. that Tom Holland has got the acting chops to be able to. Oh, am I just hating on Tom Holland? Look how good that girl is in Lilo and Stitch. So um, oh wow. Yeah. But you know, um, and Tom Holland first came to my attention as a much younger kid in The Impossible, and I actually mm-hmm. liked him from the start. So maybe you just don't like him, and that's fine, Craig. But do you know what The Impossible is a good point because I kind of for- I kind of forgot that was, and <laughs> only watched that for the first time a couple of months ago, and I kind of forgot that was Tom Holland, and actually he's possibly the best thing in that. Yeah, the stuff he's doing with Naomi Watt is fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, Jesus, I forgot that was him. <laughs> That kind of makes a point, doesn't it? <laughs> I'll shut up now. Just like before we move on, it's like that's an example of sort of the kind of stuff that bothered me with this film. Is you see the mother in Onward at the beginning doing her yoga and saying like I'm I'm a goddess or something like that. It's like well that's coming back then, and then it's like kind of forced at the end. It's like I was just so weary of it. Mm. Yeah, no, this film did very very little for me. I was very disappointed by it. Well, this is shaping up to be a, a great episode. <laughs> great uplifting episode. <laughs> oh man, Drew, you're, it's your job to talk about dark waters, isn't it? It is indeed, Craig. It is indeed. Is this is this is this film about scandal, corruption, and death hastened by hastened by <laughs> capitalism going to lift their spirits? Any? Well, <laughs> I'm going to go with no. Oh. It's got ruffers in it, though, right? Yes. Yeah. That's what we're calling him, is it? Can we not? Ruffers? <laughs> He's always been ruffers to me. I ever since he, him as the ruffalo. Can I just say, not to name drop, boys, ever since he quoted my tweet, I've had a lot of, <laughs> I've had a lot of love for the ruffers in my heart. <laughs> Was this a tweet where you called him the ruffers? <laughs> no. Um, you know, in our many personal interactions, I've never actually referred to Mark Ruffalo as the ruffers, but he'll always be ruffers to me. I think I went too far the time I tried to cuddle him. <laughs> Sorry, we digress. Mark Ruffalo's great. What's hap- What's happening with that um, Columbo thing? Probably nothing at the moment. Nothing's nothing. happening with anything at the minute, is it? Apparently, it's like, really, because I mentioned that um, connection with Columbo in my review, Craig, so you'll find oh. it in a moment, but, uh, I looked it up tonight, and apparently he's um, in a fight. You know how these things are reported. In a fight with Natasha Leone to be the person who gets to be in the Columbo review, but it definitely shouldn't be her. Wait, what? I thought he. I thought that was. I thought I'd seen on-set pictures of him dressed as Columbo. Maybe I don't. But this was a fairly recent news article. But I was only just briefly looking through just to see if it was anything was happening. But Natasha Leone. Yes. It's political correctness gone mad. <laughs> what? Yes. I'm really sorry, right? I'm re- I'm really regretting the fact that I took us off on a tangent now. <laughs> Drew, I'm really sorry. I apologise to you. I Hasten on with your review because otherwise I'm going to explode in a minute. What? <laughs> okay. So, uh, Mark Ruffalo's Rob Bilot is a successful corporate lawyer for a big Cincinnati firm and has just become a partner or associate or look, something good anyway. I'm not quite sure how this firm works. Things are looking up for him and his wife, Sarah, Anne Hathaway, and likely would have carried on like 100,000 other lawyers if it wasn't for the entry into his life of Wilbur Tennant, played by Bill Camp, a farmer from Bilot's grandmother's town of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Tennant dumps a load of videotapes on Rob, and says a bunch too, 
but I had to rely on the subtitles in another language to actually know what the farmer's issue is because I couldn't understand the bloody word Camp said. <laughs> Though I appreciate the passion with which the actor said it. <laughs> or failed to. Uh, in short, nearly 200 of his cattle have died or been killed due to health issues and deformities and he's rightly miffed. Tenant lays the blame at the feet of the giant chemical company DuPont, whose Teflon-producing factory is nearby. At first dismissive, Belot begins to look into the story and finds evidence of a massive cover-up by one of the world's largest chemical companies that has affected the health of the occupants of an entire town. He's given the go-ahead by his superior, Tom Terp, played by Tim Robbins, and begins to sue DuPont and demand their paperwork, resulting in the not-at-all childish response of delivering a veritable mountain of files to his office, <laughs> dating back to at least the 1950s. The case will uh, then consume him for the next 20 years, but he'll be determined to see justice done. As far as the plot goes, that's largely it. I've only seen three Todd Haynes-directed films before now. Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol. And all of those were, let's say, not brilliant or bad. Bad. Bad is what I mean. (laughs) Uh, And one of them had the enemy in it. Shudder. (laughs) Had I noted the director's previous work before watching this, I might have tempered my expectations somewhat and been less disappointed. Not that Dark Waters is a bad film. It's leaps and bounds ahead of those other three that I mentioned. I'm left feeling quite underwhelmed. The trailer gives the impression of this being something like Erin Brockovich with a man, uh, with a bit of The Insider or The Rainmaker. And I'm a sucker for that sort of film. Now, The Rainmaker's not brilliant, but it is probably the best thing Francis Ford Coppola has done in the last 35 years Uh, and at the risk of alienating Craig I continue to enjoy Aaron Brockovich and think that his enemy is well cast as the nippy sweetie that is the main character you're dead to me this will be the only time you hear me say this about her though (laughs) Uh, but it's not like that uh, as the trailer put it though perhaps it is more realistic in some regards the trailer goes out of its way, and I wish the creators of trailers would cut this misleading shit out, it's ultimately counterproductive, to suggest that Belot is fighting against interested parties within his own law firm, and that his task is hindered by more, mal- more by malice and corruption than by public ignorance, an overwhelming amount of data, an imperfect and unwieldy legal system, and a mind-bendingly messed up regulatory framework. There is some of that nasty stuff, to be sure, but contrary to the trailer... Tim Robbins' character actively supports Belot's case, even going so far as to shut down arguments that the firm could lose corporate business by pointing out that this is why Americans hate lawyers. I appreciate this, and based as it is on a true story, and while it may lose dramatic excitement due to the lack of up-close and personal villainy, it can still make for compelling viewing. But Dark Waters is merely alright. The best thing about the film is clearly Mark Ruffalo, Perfect as the round-shouldered, slightly shabby, regular guy lawyer. And as we have just mentioned, <laughs> Ruffalo has yeah. been linked with the role of Columbo for years. Per- and perfect as perfect Columbo. Casting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Bill Camp and Tim Robbins aside, there aren't really many memorable characters. Craig will be grateful that Bill Pullman isn't in it long enough to make much impression. <laughs> but no one else really does so either. <laughs> I have no idea why Anne Hathaway's in this at all, as she has sod all to do except be in the scene where she complains that Rob's obsessed with this case and has given up on his family, which is presumably there because these sorts of films demand such scenes. I had no idea she was even in it. 
rather than due to any good reason like it had ever been established before that point, or had any impact on the action going forward. Huh. The structure is problematic too, with large jumps forward in time accompanied with title cards that feel like they want to be considered meaningful and important, rather than what their messages of four years later is said to actually convey, which is, I guess it's been a while then. And odd bits where Ruffalo explains the basic problem and crimes to three different people at once in an oddly edited sequence for the audience's benefit. This seems particularly egregious when even the least attentive viewer would have had little trouble with You know all those dead cows and people and cancer and such. Well, DuPont made this nasty chemical, <laughs> dumped it in the water supply and pretended it didn't exist. Dead cows and cancer. It's enough to be getting on with. The gets. Um, uh, and at one point, Blot has an epiphany after looking at the cover of a children's book called Funny Teeth and there is the momentary journey to the point of view of a deranged cow. This material deserves better. DuPont really is the devil, and while the muted, sickly colour palette is fitting, I don't know quite why Haynes and cinematographer Ed Lackman worked so hard to make this film feel like it was set in the 70s when Belot's story begins in 1997. <laughs> Not unenjoyable, but ultimately lacking. Well, I haven't watched this, so I can't proffer an opinion. Um, but I'm disappointed because I was kind of looking forward to watching this. But I maybe had really, uh, I had really been looking forward to it, and I'm I am really quite disappointed. Oh, yeah. no. it, it has almost everything in it that I I feel I should like. Um, I don't really have any particular complaints about any aspect of its production or um, the end product of it, other than the central story is basically interesting enough for a five-minute recap. Um, it, it it really does not seem like the kind of story that is that deserves to have a film made about it, or at least this film made about it. If you were going to go into uh, a bit more depth into either uh, Ruffalo's character or perhaps something more about the, the kind of the processes in DuPont, then maybe. But the way this has come out, it feels like it's a... It feels like it's a 30-minute story that's been extracted into about 90-odd minutes, and it just felt a bit stretched to me. It didn't really hold my attention for an awful lot of it. Um, it just dragged an awful lot, which is uh, a real shame, because as I say, I, 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 I'm actually behind most of the, the production aspects of this. I, it felt like it should be a good film. It felt like it should be a film that I was completely on board with, but I've got to be honest, I found it all kind of dull. Yeah, that's the problem I have, Scott. I'm, I'm not too far away from you, I don't think. It's, uh, it's, it's based on a magazine article, a New York Times magazine article, yeah. and it feels like it. Exactly. There, there's yeah. not the content there. <laughs> those, those greatest of trailer words, based on a magazine <laughs> article. <laughs> it's a really important story that everyone should know about. I mean, particularly given that, I mean, I think Flint's water supply is still on fire. Um, and unrelated um, corporate fuck-ups. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's the sort of thing we should be uh, more conscious of and it, we should all be um, cognizant of going forward and how we can't trust these people. But still, yes. this film just doesn't quite nail it so hard. Uh, <laughs> it's the kind of stuff we should all be more conscious about, but the chemicals in the water are dulling our brains. <laughs> God damn it. Get that fluoride out of there. Yes, I will gladly forgo my teeth for the truth. <laughs> oh man, are we zero for three so far? Certainly unanimously. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. 
Right, what is there to know about Trolls World Tour? Don't the watch in- it. <laughs> I don't say that. The inevitable sequel to 2016's kiddie-pleasing acid trip of an animation, uh, doubling down on the latter's day-glow amphetamine-fueled surrealist bunkum, World Tour posits a world compartmentalised by musical genre and sees Poppy and Branch on a quest to save trolls of all musical dispositions from the world-conquering ambition of the Hard Rock Clan, led by the selfish Queen Barb and her father Thrash. Oh, man, how I wish I'd called one of my kids Thrash. <laughs> I've, I absolutely hate hard rock music, but there's something about the name Thrash. Um Seeking to unite classical, country, funk, pop, techno and rock in an effort to stave off homogenisation, our heroes must protect the sacred musical strings of each kingdom and ultimately deliver our children a message that it's cool to experiment and do your own thing, even if we've already established that music comes in only six distinct flavours. At least I think that's the plot. Despite having seen this three times now, I can't honestly testify, given that every time I've drifted off on the sofa next to my own kids, I've opened my eyes to be punched violently violently in the corneas by a massive glittery fist soaked in LSD while my ears are assaulted by characters speaking entirely in auto-tune and singing <laughs> funked up medleys in the spaces in between. Are you reading my mind? Those are almost exactly the words I had to describe this film. Well, here's the thing, Drew. I think I like it. Critically, <laughs> critically, I believe a great deal of scorn has been directed towards this in the original movie, which I attribute to critics, and now I can insert people like Drew, having (laughs) essentially no souls and being so world-weary that they've scrubbed all memory of childhood from their adult minds. Having said that, let's not pretend that I'd have any interest in either movie (laughs) were it not for my two young children. But while I cannot turn back the clock... I can at least make the most of my situation and open my mind to the possibility of entertainment beyond the realm of the classical senses, which Trolls World Tour surely is. Much like the first movie, World Tour is equal parts fun, funny, funky and relentlessly upbeat, a function of human existence I feel we are currently sorely undervaluing. And I need... uh, Sorry, I strongly suspect that... (laughs) I strongly suspect that the people responsible for its conception would be genuinely heedless of critical reception, even without the phenomenal returns they've made in light of its immediate digital distribution. Um, I get the sense that everyone involved in the Trolls gravy train is genuinely invested in its target audience having a good time and hopefully picking up on some common sense tips for humanity and life goals along the way. I personally find it hard to argue, and while I cannot currently go out and purchase mind-altering pharmaceuticals, I will happily, inevitably sit down on the couch at some point again soon to be rudely awakened by that pink, glittery fist. (laughs) Because, listen, here's, here's the thing. There's only so much value in spending time discussing this movie critically because there are two reasons why you would watch Trolls World Tour. Either A... And I would suggest the majority of people fall into this bracket. You've got young kids in the house, or B, for some reason you have some investment in approaching it critically, i.e. you have a podcast, which everybody does anyway. (laughs) And in either of those situations, you've got no choice. You were watching it anyway. So what's the point? Don't fight it. I didn't. Do you know what? I'm accepting of it. Trolls (laughs) are the thing that's out there. It's fun. It's relentlessly upbeat. And at this point in human history... I cannot fight that because if I did, I would have thrown myself under a f- 
bus five weeks ago. <laughs> Could you have done that before you suggested we watch this film for this podcast? I didn't suggest you watch it, man. Don't don't blame me. <laughs> well, I do blame you. And I'll tell you how I get to that. <laughs> Go on. That, you know that I'm a completionist, yes? Um, had I not Your watched, problem, not mine. Had I not watched the first film, I probably wouldn't have watched this one. I did watch the first film because I was spending time with a friend of mine and his delightful little daughter, mm-hmm. um, who I'm very fond of, mm-hmm. um, wanted me to watch Trolls with her. Mm-hmm. So I did. So I've seen the first one. Mm-hmm. I honestly barely remember it. Um, but because of that, um, because of that experience, uh, I've watched, I must watch this now. So what I'm saying is it's all Craig's fault because it was his daughter <laughs> in his house. <laughs> um, and I hate you. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't blame it, uh, your daughter because she's lovely and innocent. I get um, to listen to her singing Barracuda now. And I cannot tell you how happy that makes me. Because <laughs> she's actually not got a bad little voice on her. But when I get woken up in the morning by like a child sort of shaking me violently in bed and when I open my eyes and the first thing I hear is someone going, ooh, daddy kuda. <laughs> There's not a lot can be wrong with that. I can see that have its charms, um, unlike this film, which um, it's like a unicorn vomiting rainbows into your eyes mm-hmm. while Smurfs use pickaxes in your ear, which are then auto-tuned. Mm. For four days. <laughs> you say that as though it's a bad thing, though. <laughs> Let's be clear, I'm this is like, the best of things. Yeah, you're not, not selling me on this, Drew. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, I, this film just seemed to last forever, and I did not like a single second of it. It was just, just going straight to the centre of my head and causing me pain. At which point did your soul wither and die, <laughs> man? My soul is fine. My soul is not all of the colours in the world on screen at one time. With um, right. hideous renditions of terrible pop songs and a completely wasted Rachel Bloom. And right, this is a bad film. You're, you're talking. You're okay. So you're talking about the 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 way that this film envelops the entire color spectrum. I'm willing to bet that the three of us, right? I've no idea, but I'm willing to bet the three of us have all got at least halfway decent 4K displays at this point. Are you making an argument against this as a reference disc? <laughs> I'm making an argument against this as an anything, particularly as a thing that exists. I'm like that. I'm watching it, thinking, "Well, there's the ten bit color color gambit. What? 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 There's the ten bit color gamut. Note to self: edit out the bit where I said Culber gambit." <laughs> Man alive! That's, I'm only halfway through my second rum and coke. Jesus. I didn't mind this film, but I'm self-aware enough to know that uh, that my opinion of it is of no relevance to anyone. So, yes. tell me, um, this it, film is not for us. It, it, I'm I'm along for the ride. Oh no, I was painfully aware that I wasn't the target audience, but I was watching this and reminding myself, like, no, oh, kids have terrible taste in everything, don't they? This is awful. Mm. But I, I can I, I can see why kids are amused by this. It, it's very amusing. It has lots of shiny things and yeah. interesting songs, and I didn't hate it. Uh, and no, surreal that, shit, am I right? <laughs> pretty much, yes. Yeah. yeah. There's some very strange things going on there. The visuals are imaginative. Um, that you could latch onto as a kid. I, 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 fairly certain if I'd watched this as a kid, I would probably have liked it. The strange thing is that the kind of music that they pick for these genres, when I'm fairly certain most kids wouldn't have heard of that. I mean, how many kids mm. know Barracuda? 
before exactly. this. You know what I mean? There's, there's, it has a bit of a strange filter of it as being, well, obviously a film created by like 30 to 40 year olds thinking about what they might want to do as a kid rather than sort of being what kids today might be into. But yeah. that aside... Um, but for some reason, else, kids know, are well, loving fine. it anyway. It turns out good music is just good music. So, tell mm. Um Yeah, but... I didn't hate it, and for a film that is distinctly, obviously, quite clearly not for me, um, that's about as much as I can care about uh, for it. So yes, yeah. I, it's it, it would seem to pass the test if I if this was one film that I had to be subjected to multiple times because my kids were looking into it. I suspect it would not be the worst thing that could have happened to me. Didn't mind it. If nothing else, I don't think thematically there's a great argument to be made for the Trolls movies, but I do wonder at the sort of critical rounding that they take from people who just... I I don't know. There is, like you say, Scott, great music is great music, and I don't think there's any harm in exposing especially young kids, to the notion that, do you know what? The thing you like might not be to everyone else's taste, but yeah. you should be open to other ideas. Yeah. And you should be, culturally, you should be open to stuff that you might not necessarily like on the surface. Yes. Because it's it's very heavy-handed. Yeah. But do you know what? If you're, if you're between the ages of sort of four and eight or whatever this, you know, the target audience for this film is, I can understand why it works. It is. Yeah. And not as, everything's for you. Critics. Not everything's for you, and you should tolerate <laughs> other people's opinions and tastes. What a terrible message to be instilling in young children. I um, don't deny there's, a, there's and it's, a good message in this, but it's just it's so heavy-handed, and everything's auto-tuned, and I hate it. <laughs> well, let's be honest, not everything's auto-tuned. There's one character who's auto-tuned, right? Well, two, actually, now, because Guy Diamond oh, has a child. Yeah, <laughs> Guy Diamond has got a child whose name I can't remember, but I remember it made... Is it... Tiny Diamond. Tiny Diamond. Yeah, yeah what was I going to say? Yeah, it's that thing of, like, adults complaining that, like, oh, kids' movies are just, like, com- you know, everybody wants to praise the kids' movie that's got jokes that goes over the kids' heads that are intended for the, the parents. This is this has got that, and it's also got just surreal nonsense in it that just, just the most bizarre stuff. You know the bit I laughed at the loudest? You know the sort of crazy bat creature with the massive eyes? Debbie. Is it Debbie? Yeah, right. Okay, I can't even remember the name. Do you know the point at which Branch basically lays Debbie down, strokes her wings out, and then massages her eyeballs? (laughs) I haven't laughed. (laughs) To calm her down. I haven't laughed at anything so hard in months, and I'll I'll take it. (laughs) I don't think the Trolls movies... You'd think that they were... You think they were the same league as the Emoji movie, by the way, that people talk about them, and they are not. They are operating at a level well above that, and people should stop being critical of them, Drew. They're fine for what they are. They're not high art, but I don't think they pretend to be. They are They are operating on the currency of joy and music, and I'm not going to beat them up about that. And I hope that one day you can go back to the pawn shop and buy your soul back, Drew. Someone talk about something Shall we else. Move on? Yes. <laughs> stop bullying me, please. Conform, damn it, even though that's exactly against the message of this film. <laughs> yes. I'm calling this one for four now. We're one for four now. And I think I get the feeling that Scott's not, a, he's not necessarily with me, but he's not against me. No, come on. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go one for five. Whose whose job like, is it to talk about extraction? I think we're about we're, we're, we're maybe point five for onward and point five for trolls. So between them, if you cut them in half and shut them together, then maybe that'll work. I don't know. Cool. <laughs> 
Right, uh, so we're, Three quarters. We're moving on to Extraction, which uh, is a Chris Helmsworth vehicle. Extraction. It's like pulling teeth. Yes. <laughs> That's basically the review, Sam, yeah. <laughs> it's in this Chris Helmsworth vehicle, the son of an Indian drug lord is kidnapped by a rival Bangladeshi drug lord. A small team of specialists is hired to get him back, rather than pay any ransom, headed by Hemsworth Tyler Rake. While he's able to take the kid from his captors, there's some double-crossing afoot, forcing Rake to bust out of Dhaka solo through the medium of murdering several hundred police officers. I mean, there's more to the film than that, but not much more, and certainly nothing that isn't out of Baby's first book of clichés and genre tropes. <laughs> so, uh, for example, so confident is Joe Russell's script of being utterly generic that Rake's obligatory troubled backstory is only vaguely hinted at through blurry flashbacks and dreams, with you left to fill in the details yourself. I made a note at the point at which I realised I did not care one jot about anything happening on the screen, that being 28 minutes in. Now, while there's perhaps some humanity early on in the film, when we briefly get to know uh, Rudrakash Jaswali's Ovi Mahajan Jr., uh, the kidnapped kid, um, after he's been taken, he may as well be replaced by a rucksack that's flung pillar <laughs> to post by Rake. Now... <laughs> Rake. Are you suggesting he's a MacGuffin character, Craig? Just a little bit. Uh, I mean, Rake is almost by design so overwhelmingly default that interest <laughs> will refuse to adhere to him. And well, who cares about the tribulations of drug dealers? I had a slight glimmer of hope later on when David Harbour shows up, as Hemsworth shows, has shown <laughs> yeah. plenty of charisma later on in, in previous roles, um, that I would have thought that there's potential for these two to play off each other. But sadly, no, these scenes are just as predictable as everything else in the movie. Uh, now, the car chases and shootouts that compose a solid 80% of this film are, to be fair, pretty well handled on a technical level. But as stated multiple times by this point, they are happening to people that I give not a solitary fig about, so they all fell rather flat. Not least because of the number of surely innocent policemen that Rake mercilessly slaughters. Yes. We, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're not supposed to feel sorry for them because the chief of police is in the drug lord's pocket, but it's quite a stretch to assume that everyone under him is also yes. on board the evil train. <laughs> for, for a man grieving his son, he's all right with dispatching <laughs> any number of other people's sons. Yes. <laughs> Share my pain. <laughs> Like everything else in the film, we were expected not to think about it too much. Now, this has, at least according to Netflix, been a huge success by whatever metric they measure success. This must surely be a commentary on the boredom imposed by lockdowns, rather than any sort of vote of approval for this characterless, bland, sub-Call of Duty cutscene of a film that I simply cannot imagine anyone caring about in the slightest. Netflix search, uh, search for a competent action series must continue. Six Underground at least had a bit of personality. This film, and in particular the very last scene of this film, can get bent so hard that it forms a pretzel. Yeah, this <laughs> film that is apparently going to have a sequel. Yes. Oh, uh, what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I don't, even, I don't even necessarily remember the last scene of this. Don't want. <laughs> oh, yes. The last scene. You know the tremendously hurt person... Who could possibly yeah. have survived? Yeah. Yeah, well, he survived in the last scene. Shut up! Yep. No, the, the well, the, the that can't be explicit because I would remember that. The no, there's an implication that there's a blurry out of focus guy in the background that it is um, pretty clearly it, supposed to be. Cool, but it's very clearly. As opposed to is. having become a human tea bag. Yes. <laughs> and given the fact that there is now going to be a sequel, then you obviously know who it is. Doesn't need to be that person, though, does it? <clears throat> Fuck off. Well, no, because that person's coming back. And unless you do a prequel, then it's that person. Let's just, I'm assuming he's going to be a mute then. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, 
it, it is such like Call of Duty cutscenes, Scott. That's a very good way of putting mm-hmm. it. It's so generic. Honestly, I I didn't have as much of a difficult time getting through this as the rhythm section, but on it, if I'd watched them in any different order, perhaps it would have just been different. Mm. Um, it's just so generic and empty, and I don't care about anyone. Nobody's got a character. Um, I didn't believe the guy being the Bangladeshi drug lord at all, um, and his control seemed to be way too much. Mm. You know, yeah. he, he runs the entire capital city of a country, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and it, like in other films, the bits where suddenly people find him in the middle of this massive city full of human beings. Um, mm-hmm. I'd have been more bothered about, but it's like, actually, like, at this point, I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> full of, like, basically 10% of the, the Earth's population. <laughs> yeah. And then they can find them, and it's, like, it's this little kid that finds them too. Mm. Like, honestly, the one thing I was hoping for this film that could have provided me with some amusement, if he just shot that kid in the face because the kid <laughs> tried to kill him twice. Mm-hmm. It's like one time you get away with, not the second time. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then strange subplot is about some kid was wanting to prove himself to this guy and cuts off his finger. Like, where was that going? He was desperate to cut his finger off. I don't know yeah. why. Um, and it's him that does the deed at the end, but it's like, why? He's not even a character. Oh. <laughs> it's just so generic and dull and pointless, and apparently really successful in this kind of sequel. And I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. You know what? There, there, why? There can't be many more podcasts than us that have decried modern action films and hoped for a, ha- a return to like the eighties uh, action film genre, Haiti, and. It must be said that when we're saying that, we're thinking of the good 80s action films, which this is, <laughs> I think, trying to ape, but doing it in the way yeah. that is the absolute worst of the direct-to-video garbage that would have been released about then. I mean, th- this should star Michael Dudikoff. Uh, this is just hot garbage, and it's, it's that sort of minimal plotting and mm. entirely generic, by-the-numbers, tropetastic nonsense this- that was churned out in the 80s, and it's garbage, and I don't want it's to see this e- again. It's not even that, Scott. This is this is why I've got a problem with Taken. Because the minute people opened the door and accepted Taken in, and there are people who there are there are people whose opinions I would otherwise respect who think that <laughs> Taken has merit. And I wonder what planet I'm living on in comparison to them, because that is the biggest piece of fing garbage in the history of humankind. And it's this whole sort of thing of oh, the minimalist bereft of plot, the efficiency of blah blah. Shut up! Don't tell me that not having a plot and being efficient. Don't use a don't use efficient as a byword for no script or no inventiveness yeah. or no development. There's no excuse for that. I honestly I grieve for the people I used to know who tell me that Taken is a good movie because they are <laughs> dead to me, and that has got so much to answer to for that this kind of nonsense. And this film sets out in that whole vein of this film wants to be the raid so much. But it forgets that the raid was operating on a, on a level where it's like, okay, it might be minimalist in terms of plot, but there's an art and a craft to what's being presented on screen. And at a certain point, by the end of this movie, you talk about a Call of Duty cutscene, Scott, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wow, this is just an on-rail shooter, yeah. is how I would, I would... And the the sort of, like, soulless, methodical dispatching of people with, like, two shots from a rifle just... There's a point at the end of this film where for five minutes, Hemsworth, and I can't remember, which one is he? X Hemsworth, where X is... Chris? Chris? I hope. 
Yeah, right, he's, he's the most famous Hemsworth Craig. Yeah, whichever one, Thor, where Thor is yes. walking about and it's like two shots, two shots, two shots. For five minutes, all it is is him walking across a bridge. Just And it's like, I don't need 30 people to have been shot two times exactly each for this whole thing. This is, there's no craft, there's no art to this. This is soulless bilge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, the, the high point of this movie was Tyler Rake he killed a guy with a rake! Ha 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 ha! Except delete ha 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 ha. Because by that point, there was nothing interesting or funny about it. Um, the, do you know what the. I don't. I despair that this has become as popular as it is because having watched the trailer for this, I thought to myself, oh, you want to be the raid, but I know this is going to be terrible. And advanced word was, this is terrible. This is Chris Hemsworth doing a favour for who are the guys that directed the last two Avengers the movies? Russell the brothers. Russell Brothers. The Russell Brothers. This seems to be some sort of thing where the Russell Brothers have some dirt on family man, overt Instagram family man, uh, Chris Hemsworth, with his um, nuclear family and his impossible physique. And his goddamn, I'm annoyed by how I'm annoyed by how much I want to have a pint with Chris Hemsworth <laughs> because he literally has everything, doesn't he? He's he's a couple of years short of our age, probably is. Am I right? What age is he? Perfect. He's the perfect age. He's he's the perfect age. He's, he's the a perfect, perfect physique. He's got perfect children. Everybody loves him, including me, because <laughs> he's, he's Australian and he's quite happy to be a normal guy and he's got massive fame and he doesn't have to worry about money and his family don't have to worry about money for generations to come. And I hate you, Chris Hemsworth, but I love you. <laughs> and my wife loves you and that's half the problem. That's why we ended up watching this film is because... I'm under no illusions. My wife is fantasizing about Chris Hemsworth. And she was the one who said, no, we need to watch this. And we watched the trailer and I said, are you sure? Because you know that little preview? I said, Kate, this looks like absolute garbage. (laughs) No, 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 we need to watch it. And I'm 40 and she's 40. And I accept now that she thinks about other men when we're making love. And it's just, (laughs) one of those men is undoubtedly Chris Hemsworth. And I don't blame her. I really don't. Because I'd make love to Chris Hemsworth. Who wouldn't? Let's... Let's be honest. He's got everything. God damn you, Chris Hemsworth. You're masculine. You're feminine. You've got a sense of humour. You're a down-to-earth guy. Why can't we all be Chris Hemsworth? I want you, Chris Hemsworth. Everybody wants Chris Hemsworth. So watch. let's watch this. And it is bankrupt. It is bankrupt from start to finish. It is the most soulless enterprise that Netflix have pumped money into. It sets... It, it's got the good grace to be international. Do you know what? Do you know what I want to see? You know how we were talking about earlier, or I was certainly rambling on about female directors and female leads in traditionally masculine roles? Well, this does something worthwhile in that it takes the action movie and it relocates it to somewhere where a huge percentage of the Earth's population reside, and we as a Western audience have traditionally had no interest whatsoever in our entertainment being set or coming from that region. I applaud the fact that this movie wanted to set itself um, in, the, in the location that it does. However, having gotten to the end of the movie, I thought to myself, this is less about cultural exposure than it is about where was it cheaper for you to film and where did the stunt performers care less about their own personal health per dollar um, invested? Do you know all you need to know about this movie? Go to the IMDb page to this movie and see how many of the actors involved have actually even got headshots against their profile. <laughs> and those are the most interesting people in this movie. You know the really bad guy who sets, who who throws a kid off a f***ing roof? <laughs> yeah. 
There's something I've not seen before. Wow, this film's going to go places where I wasn't expecting it. That's reprehensible, but it's doing something interesting. Mm, let's not pursue that any further. Let's not invest any time in that whatsoever. This movie doesn't pursue anything worthwhile in being that. It sets out to be worthless and <laughs> is worthless, and people are absorbing it, and they are making another one now. What we're saying is that it's not a good film. We don't recommend it. <laughs> Even I'm bored to death at the sound of my voice now. Listeners, I apologise. Do you know what else this movie has done? It has hammered the final nail in the coffin of the value of the single take. Yeah. Because it spends 10, 15 minutes in the middle of this film in what is clearly meant to be, or what it thinks is going to be, a groundbreaking piece of action filmmaking doing nothing other than highlighting why modern filmmaking's obsession with the single take is an absolutely pointless pursuit. There is no point in a single take if it's not a single... There is a reason for a single take. There's a reason why people talk about the the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas, right? And this is not it. Yes, this was very much 1917 shorn of all meaning meaning and sense, yeah. A single take for the for the sake of a single take. There's no reason to do this other than someone sat down and went, do you know what would be great if we did this as a single take, but it's not a single take. Why make it a single take then? Because you're yes. not... Why fake a single take as well? Because... That's yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I've, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm not... I'm, uh, I'm not... This film's mediocrity and general badness has rendered you incoherent. <laughs> it has. I'm going to shut up now because I've kind of made my point. I'm sure you can extract from my rantings, my rum fueled rantings, what my point was. I'm not even sure what it is myself at this point. Five stars. Five stars, says Paul Ross. Press F to pay respects. This, this movie is the press F to pay respects of movies. <laughs> Do you know what? Total Car Crash, and I will watch its sequel because I feel like having not walked out of this, uh, walked out of it, having not gotten up off of (laughs) my sofa halfway through this Netflix endeavour, I feel I am now complicit in it (laughs) and I deserve to have to watch the sequel. I will self-flagellate that much when whatever the goddamn sequel is arrives and whatever the explanation as to how that can even come about is, (laughs) I will subject myself to it because I am deserving of it. Extraction to insertion. Could I make a small request? Of course you can. Can we please stop talking about extraction? <laughs> Drew. Craig. The day shall come. Biting satire, humour, and a large helping of absurdity. It sounds like my sort of thing, and also sounds like a Chris Moore sort of thing, which is precisely what the day shall come is. Yay! Uh... Marshawn Davis's Moses Al Shabazz is the leader of a small religious commune. is the leader of a small religious commune in Miami, the Star of Six, whose aim is the improvement of the lives of black people and the non-violent toy crossbows aside, overthrow of the accidental dominance of the white race. Moses founded the community after God talked to him through a duck. Though, to be scrupulously exact, it was a duck through which Satan normally talked and God managed to sneak through one day when Satan wasn't looking. (laughs) This fact is one of several early clues that Moses is... not well. (laughs) 
he's a kind, well-meaning, and mostly harmless young man who fortunately is plagued by angels more than he's plagued by demons, but who would clearly be far better off back on his medication. But when his family and followers are threatened with eviction from their farm, Moses is tempted to take up the offer proposed by the local shopkeeper and kiddie fiddler Reza, played by Kazan Novak, and meet with his Al-Qaeda contact Noura to, find an insur- to, to fund an insurrection. Reza is in fact an FBI asset, as is Noura, and they are working under the direction of ambitious FBI agent Kendra Glack, played by Anna Kendrick, who is trying to set up the Star of Sex in order to make her name and garner a much-desired arrest and terrorism conviction. The fact that Moses is not a terrorist, and that he plans to turn the AK-47s he has been offered into fence posts, is considered a merely unimportant detail. Things become more serious when Moses' landlord demands radioactive material for some connections of his, and the members of the commune are now involved in an increasingly more farcical situation which culminates in a declaration of a nuclear emergency that isn't actually a nuclear emergency, but that can only be called off by the people who know that it isn't a real nuclear emergency, first declaring it a nuclear emergency because you can't call off something that doesn't exist without first declaring that it exists. It'd be madness otherwise, right? (laughs) By the film's finale, Agent Glack's conscience has decided to show up, and she tries her best to mend things, but it's too late and too many people and mechanisms are involved. The Day Shall Come's continuous undercurrent of pathos provides the foundation for ending that is a a real gut punch, most particularly because it comes to knowledge that, over the top as much as the film can seem, it is based on numerous true stories of FBI provocation and entrapment, most notably that of the Liberty City 7, a massive FBI success in which the Bureau prevented an attack on Chicago by a group from Florida. Less well publicised was the fact that the plan of this group of Haitian Catholics involved riding into Chicago on horses and creating a tidal wave. (laughs) The film's opening message of Based on a Hundred True Stories gives you a clear idea that this was not an outlier. The Day Shall Come isn't as funny or as effective as Four Lions, but it's still very humorous, with a script from Morris and Veebrand in the the loop writer Jesse Armstrong, full of killer lines and wordplay, and full of the director's seething righteous indignation. The cast are all pretty great, with Kayvan Novak being excellent value as usual, though it's perhaps Kendrick, the film's biggest star by a margin, who feels out of place, never seeming 100% comfortable in a role. However, she is playing a character trying to prove herself in a male-dominated world, and I could be persuaded that it is the role, not the performance, that causes the slight awkwardness. The standout, though, is Marshawn Davis, in his first film, who I don't think could be better than his performance of Moses, and who plays it perfectly earnestly, even while, for example, sitting atop a conference room table wearing a tricorn heart and a share curtain. (laughs) I very much look forward to seeing more of him. In the name of Allah, Jesus, Melchizedek, Black Santa, Muhammad, and General Tucson. Bishops! <laughs> yeah, I liked The Day Shall Come. Um, unfortunately, not quite as much as I expected I would like it. Um, that's my only kind of negative is that, given that I hold Chris Morrison in such high regard for mm. everything for as long as I have, I, I automatically expect that anything that his name is attached to will be the best thing ever. And this is just a good thing. 
Uh, <laughs> yes, I expected special when I got good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is Which is that, fine, but when you're expecting special, it's yeah. a bit different. It's at that point where even for our idols, we must expect diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like my reception to um, the Death of Stalin, the Ian yeah, yeah, film, yeah. which again, uh, just another comedy legend who I expect just impossibly perfect things from and only yeah. get merely, merely very good things. So <laughs> Merely better than most other things. Yes, yes. So um, I, I'm certainly going to recommend it. I'm not going to um, give too much l- emphasis to my uh, my expectations because if this film had come from nowhere from someone that I didn't know about, I would I would no doubt have been blindsided. If this would have been a, oh, I don't know, a Boots Riley film, then I would have been uh, floored by it, I, I would I assume. Um, yes, it's got an awful lot of like things to like. I, I, I do like the uh, the kind of high-minded satire of this uh, selection of government agencies and police forces trying to catfish each other, um, which works to... Uh, it, it builds in that sort of same way that they kind of... Uh, it, it reminds me in all the best ways of Kubrick's um, Doctor Strange Love. Um, there's lots of really lovely elements of satire and how the government agencies kind of play each other. And uh, yeah, th- there's lots of really funny things that go there. And the wordplay, as you mentioned, is uh, exemplary. And there's some really good lines in it and some really interesting characters to latch onto, um, mainly from the uh, sort of the church's side of things. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's clearly the best film we've spoken about today so far and thankfully one that looks like we'll actually be able to recommend that people uh, watch without any particular uh, provisos or <laughs> asterisks or anything. So yes, yes, I'm, let's, let's end on a positive note. This was a good film. If you like satire, if you like um, anything sort of vaguely challenging, I'm sure you'll get a great deal of uh, enjoyment out of this. And yes, uh, a good film. Which you should watch. Yay, a good film! <laughs> Yay! We found That's one great. film out of six that you might like. Go for it. We got there in the end. <laughs> yes, so until next time, take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get in touch with us for any particular reason, you can do. Uh, we're still on Twitter, we're there at Fudson Film. We're still on Facebook for some reason, uh, facebook.com slash Fudson Film. And you can still email us through podcast at com. Uh, until next time, I shall say goodbye, and I'm sure that my compadres shall do too. Bye. Fairly well.